Zephaniah the prophet. Renee, will you read starting in verse 1 and I'll tell you where to stop. The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. Why do we get that much introduction? Think about the other prophets. It's not unusual for whoever's recording this, the prophet or a scribe, to tell you that the prophet is the son of so-and-so. But here we get son of so-and-so, and then grandson of so-and-so, great-grandson. What is the point of all of that? All of that is correct, centered on that one word. It's to get to Hezekiah. It really is about putting Hezekiah at the center of that list of names because it establishes credibility, because it, it is going to explain why Zephaniah does what he does, why his prophecy is t- tailored, narrowly focused the way that it is. Zephaniah gets this lengthy genealogy that includes Hezekiah because it's going to explain, one, why is this guy so hard on the royal officials? When you read the other prophets, they are hard on the people, they're hard on the priests, they're hard on the royal officials, usually in pretty even number or hardest of all on the priests. But uh, Zephaniah is going to be really, really hard on the royal officials. Why? It's his family. That's the line from which he comes. And, uh, Karen, would you read verse 8? And on the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the officials and the king's sons and all who array themselves in foreign attire. He saw this firsthand. He saw what they were wearing. He saw what the royal officials were doing in the courts. His criticism is because he has access to the royal courts and he sees a lot of the things that not everyone would see because they're not allowed behind the curtain, so to speak. So Zephaniah is going to have a lot to say specifically in criticism of the, the royal courts. That's, uh, that's his unique position here. Let's talk about the historical background of this, which is kind of the light breaking through the darkness for a brief moment sort of thing. Judah's kings leading up to this, you've got Manasseh, that's bad. Hopefully by this point you know to associate Manasseh's name with bad things. Then you've got Ammon, which is, the Bible literally calls it revival of bad. <laughs> like when you think about a revival, you think, oh, the spirit's moving up in here. Yeah, the spirit of darkness. <laughs> so uh, Ammon comes after that. But then you get Josiah. And Josiah brings about religious reformation, widespread. Josiah makes efforts to remove the false worship from the people and to restore true worship to the people. And it comes in two waves. First, in around 628, Josiah, just under the spirit of the Lord, recognizes that these things must be done and makes some significant changes toward removing false worship and adding true worship. It's not until seven years later that the second wave comes. What happens to Josiah in 621 that kind of changes everything for Israel for a while? He finds the law. 
Remember, the law got lost. <laughs> the, the, the actual scrolls that had the word of God, lost. We lost them. They're in the library archives somewhere, and they're found. And Josiah reads them and says, "What? wait, what? We were supposed to be doing this stuff? This is what God wants? Well, we better get on this. So that's when the major reforms are, are brought to light. Some names you need to know and some names that will come up as we think about this period of history. Hilkiah is one. Hilkiah is the priest or a priest at the time of Josiah. We read about him in 2 Kings. He was the high priest over the temple of priests uh, in the land of Benjamin. He was the father of an influential family in Judah. And he's the one who found that copy of the Torah that I mentioned, who found the book at the temple in Jerusalem at the time that uh, Josiah had commanded that the temple be refurbished. So, I mean, this really is kind of an amazing story of uh, somebody tells, we've lived in this house 50 years and we've never cleaned out the attic. And this says, you need to go and clean out the attic. And it's while they're cleaning out the attic that they find these dusty old scrolls that turn out to be the Torah, God's word for his people. And Hilkiah is the one who brings those to Josiah. Huldah Huldah was a prophetess. Again, we read about her in 2 Kings, uh, also in Chronicles. She is approached by Hilkiah to give the Lord's opinion after the book of the law is rediscovered. So this is another one of these, just as an aside. This is another one of these great examples of when you are in an argument with someone about God's design for male leadership of the church. And they will bring up the names of individual women in church history that had positions of leadership. And if you aren't equipped and familiar with the situation of what they're talking about, you're going to feel a little overwhelmed or a little caught off guard. And so you think about like Deborah. Well, most of us know the story. Deborah did amazing things. Why did she do them? Because all of the men abrogated and wouldn't step up. So that's not exactly God's seal of approval on Deborah's leadership. Well, when, when you talk about Huldah in the Old Testament, well, all these men, these kings and this king went to Huldah, the prophetess, to have her bring them the word of God and explain what they ought to do. Well, that's true. That actually is what happened in the Bible. It happened in the Bible after a period where the book of the law had been lost for 50 years and nobody knew what God said anymore. Right? That's not a, a raving endorsement of this approach. And so both things can be true. God used uses women in amazing, extraordinary ways in the history of his church. It's not a question of uh, capabilities, because you can see at any point that God can raise up a woman for himself whose capabilities meet or exceed that of any man that he raised up. It's God's design. And he said, this is how I'll do it. And then we kind of have to stop there with, yeah, that's what God said. And stop trying to give reasons for it beyond that, but also certainly stop trying to argue with it. And then when we have to argue with it from cases like this, once you dig into the details, you look a little foolish when you say, oh, well, I want to be like the prophetess Huldah. I want God's people to go into darkness for decades upon decades so that they don't even know what God's leaders are supposed to be. Uh, so just a little bit of a rabbit trail there. It's interesting that it is a design argument. 
Like it, it is, it is very much a design argument. And once you start capitulating on God's design, you start capitulating on God's design everywhere, which is where we find ourselves. That's right. Today. It's no different than sexuality arguments. You you can say sexuality. You even have more evidence from general revelation. The parts fit. Reproduction works. But even if you set that aside and were to say sexuality is just about pleasure and emotional experience, yes, that doesn't match what God designed. You say, well, you know, who are you to say what God designed? Uh, no one, except I read God's revelation where he says what he designed, and then whether or not I agree with it, whether or not my sinful nature thinks it's best, I either do what God designed or I tell God I don't care what you designed. And that's what we should be pushing people toward. The only people we should really be concerned with, I mean this philosophically and intellectually, the only people we should be completely dissatisfied with are the people who think you can live in the middle, where you say, I love, honor, and obey God, and don't care about his design. That's madness. And so helping people to see, what do you mean by love God? I love you, and I will listen to nothing you say, and don't believe you have any lordship over me, and you don't even want what's best for me. But that, that, that's, yes, that's most people. That's what's so mind and then they and they would celebrate the fact that they would be like, "God is love." You know, they their version of what God, you know. Yeah, God is love, which apparently means God loves my self love. <laughs> right? Isn't that really what they mean? God loves my self love, which today in the sermon we're going to hear one hundred percent the opposite. One hundred percent the opposite. Following Christ is not love of self, it's what? Death to self. Denial, but even stronger language, death. That's pretty intense to try and reconcile that with God loves me and the way he loves me is I get to do what I think is best. Hilkiah and some others, priests, go to the prophetess Huldah and she is... Uh, the Lord is using her in a very similar way that the Lord uses Deborah. The, so they come to her looking for the word of the Lord because they've forgotten where you go to find it. And she tells them God's word, which is Judah will be punished. And Judah will be punished for the sins of its kings and for the sins of its people. Josiah will be spared this judgment because his heart was patient and he humbled himself before the Lord. Isn't it interesting that what spares the judgment of God is not moral perfection. It is not some level of righteousness that exceeds the people around you. At least I'm better than them. What spares the judgment of God is the humility to admit you deserve the judgment and that the judgment is just. That's what spares you the judgment is genuine acknowledgement that were you to be judged, it would be just. That's... uh, Almost New Testament kind of talk there, isn't it? Uh, All right, so that's our historical situation. Zephaniah is a very simple book in terms of what's covered. Two, Two main points that are happening here. And it's about the day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord is going to bring judgment. And the day of the Lord is going to bring salvation. That's it. That is the summary of Zephaniah. So first, let's talk about the day of judgment. Josiah will escape this punishment, but Judah will not for the reasons uh, we just said. And for that matter, neither will the sinful nations. 
It's not as though God lets some sin and rebellion go unchecked forever while punishing arbitrarily others. All sin and rebellion will be judged and will be punished, either in Christ or on the individuals and nations responsible for it. So this is the theme of Zephaniah. You get this this military language, this conquest, and this idea, and this is important in the in the minor prophets. Remember, we've talked about progressive revelation and the idea that God reveals himself more, more detail, more clearly, more specific over time. So sometimes God will talk about things that are rather vague and general, and you won't get specific details into it uh, about it later. The easiest example of this is the gospel itself. Where's the first mention of the gospel in scripture? Genesis 3:16. You know, about the seed and the serpent. If all you had was Genesis 3:16, would you know that God has made a promise to save his people? You should. Would you have any idea the form that that's going to take? No. It's revealed. It's revealed. The, 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 uh, God will give more clarity to Abraham, more clarity through Moses, more clarity through the prophets, more clarity through John the Baptist, and then absolute clarity through Jesus, who says, here I am. So when you talk about the day of the Lord, when you talk about what we consider to be end times, you've got to remember the progressive revelation concept that God is giving out small levels of detail or he's speaking in generalities or what, I, what you could even call some, some vagaries that he will bring more clarity to over time. And the minor prophets, God is not using the minor prophets with the original audience to prepare them to live in the church age. Why? They're not going to be alive in the church age. They're going to be dead for a thousand years. What he says about the day of the Lord will certainly be relevant for those of us who live in the church age. But it will not be as clear or as detailed for those of us living in the church age. Because what did, what did Israel's focus need to be on? Did it need to be on not going back to Judaism and abandoning Christ as they live in a persecuted world where the church is beating back the gates of hell until Christ returns in glory? Nope, not what their focus needed to be. That's true. That is the culmination of the day of the Lord. The very day of the Lord that's being talked about here is that, is the return of Christ. But what they needed to be focused on was not that portion of the timeline and how to be faithful in our portion of the timeline. They needed to be focused on their portion of the timeline. What does faithfulness to the day of, in light of the day of the Lord look like now in the period in which God placed them. And this can be very confusing sometimes for people that are trying to interpret the minor prophets when they get into this game of, is this specific prophecy relevant to Israel or to the church? Which is it? 
Which is God's plan? And then we got to do all the slicing and dicing. And the answer is always both. Always both. Because it's always the same ultimate promise. This day of the Lord. And at various times in history, God is speaking to people about the time in history in which they live or even a future one. Like when Jesus gives the Olivet Discourse, he's speaking to the disciples, but he's also speaking to the people that will live under the apostolic ministry about what's going to happen after he returns. He's not speaking with that detail or that clarity to uh, Zephaniah. He's saying because of this great day of the Lord, I'll get to the details about that later in history when it matters. Here's what you need to know. It's a day of judgment, and it's a day of salvation. Well, who's it a day of judgment for? Well, what's most relevant is the people who are doing the things that you're doing today. (laughs) What you're doing today is a great example of those who will receive judgment on the day of the Lord. And as a shadow of that judgment... Just to give you some sort of experiential sense of what that judgment will look like, I'm going to bring in the Assyrians or the Babylonians or the Romans, and they are going to execute my judgment for me. Not the day of the Lord judgment, but a shadow judgment. The same way that the church is a a shadow of uh, the new heavens and the new earth. The same way that life in the church under the means of grace is a, is a picture, not a complete picture, but a, 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 a small picture of what life will be like in glory. So these judgments that God would send against Israel in these specific times are shadows of the day of the Lord judgment. But throughout history, people would get very confused, especially Jews who wanted to deny the truth about Christ, and then later evangelicals in the 20th century got confused for reasons that are not entirely clear to me, where you had to draw this massive distinction between the church and Israel, and some of this stuff is only about Israel, curses and promises, and some of this stuff is only about the church, promises never curses, and it, it, that so overcomplicates what's happening in Scripture, as opposed to if you just think about God as always, when he's talking about the day of the Lord, talking about the same thing. He's just teaching different audiences about how to relate to that day of the Lord given their situation or the situation that they'll see. Does that make sense? So what you have in chapter 1 and the beginning of 2, Matt, will you read starting at verse 2, chapter 1, verse 2. Just start reading and I'll stop you at some point. I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal and the name of the idolatrous priests along with the priests, those who bow down on the roofs to the host of the heavens, those who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet swear by Milcom, those who have turned back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of him. Stop there. Thank you. Who is this judgment against? People who are trying to have it both ways. Well, hold on. It names. It gives a proper noun in the middle of that that Matt read. Judah. Jerusalem. Inhabitants of Jerusalem. Yes. And then 
why is this judgment coming against them is the question Andrew answered. They're trying to have it both ways, right? They, they want to worship, but they don't want to worship Yahweh the way Yahweh says he's to be worshipped. They want to worship, but they don't want to worship exclusively. They want the blessings of the gods, but they don't want covenant fidelity to Yahweh. They, so God says to Judah, I am bringing this judgment against you because of idolatry. How does that relate to the day of the Lord? If the day of the Lord is Christ's coming, second coming. Does what I just said, does this judgment have anything to do with that? Yeah, it's absolutely a little miniature picture of it. It's the same thing that you'll be judged for on that day. If you are judged and found wanting on that day, it will be because you said, there is no God but me. I am happy to worship, to honor, to respect all these other many gods, M-I-N-I, many gods, as long as they ultimately bend their will to mine. That's what everybody's going to say who is on the judgment side of the equation in front of Christ. My way. That's what their life was about. My way. And so, go in reverse thousands of years, and God is saying to his people, that's what you're saying now. And I'm going to judge that now. He's not judging their souls now, because it's not the great judgment. He's sending armies in to overthrow their city and to take them captive. And so actually, he's doing them a favor (laughs) because he's doing this as a call to repentance. He's doing this so that they might get a taste of what judgment looks like and what it is that God can justly judge so that they would change their ways, so that they would turn back to him. And I think part of what confuses people is when, they, when you talk about the day of the Lord, the Old Testament always makes it sound like this is a, a one-day thing, a, a moment in time where the battle happens and is, is won. And that's what we're looking forward to. But the fact that we're waiting for that means that there are going to be a lot of many battles, M-I-N-I, small that are reflective of the day of the Lord between now and then. As we live for the, as we live preparing for that day, God will be gracious to bring judgments that call people to repentance. So when you think about little judgments in your life where God rebukes you to point you to your sin, when you think about more world, global, or nationalistic judgments, whether it's world wars or nations that think too highly of themselves and God brings some sort of destruction, or that's the category for this. And every time something like this happens in the church, when the church is exposed and ridiculed for scandal and, and uh, you know, is, is judged even by the world, by an unbelieving world. They're judged by unbelieving Assyrians, evil, horrible people. So we get mad when an unbelieving world judges scandal in the church, but there shouldn't be scandal in the church. They are God's tool to bring judgment against hidden evil in order that people would be called to repentance.
it's, it's all on the same spectrum, but it's all about this day of the Lord. What you get in what Matt was reading, and I wouldn't have expected you to pick up on this, but if you look back at the text, um, watch the narrowing of the focus. Verses 1 and 2 are about what? Everything. Everything. The entirety of the cosmos. What are 4 and four through 6 about? Judah and Jerusalem. What about 8 and 9? This is where you may not know what those are. Specific groups. Yeah, specific groups of of Judeans. And then 10 and 11, I really wouldn't expect you to know this, are specific districts. So what is... What is Zephaniah doing here rhetorically? What's the rhetorical power of this approach? Who is judgment against? Well, it's against the whole world. And it's against God's people. And it's against my church. And it's against my social group. And it's against me. Just really narrowing in. What a call to repentance, right? What a, what, a, what a way for God to get us to focus on pointing the finger at ourselves before we point it at others. <laughs> Seeing and taking hold of the opportunity to be called to repentance before we just lash out against others. It's the urgency. What does he say there at the end? It may be that you may be hidden on the day of Yahweh's anger. Then, chapter 2, starting in verse 4. Jake, will you read there? For Gaza shall be deserted, and Ashkelon shall become a desolation. Ashdod's people shall be driven out at noon, and Ekron shall be uprooted. Woe to the inhabitants of the seacoast, the nation of the Cherubites. The word of the Lord is against you. O Canaan, land of the Philistines, and I will destroy you until no inhabitant is left. And you, O seacoast, shall be pastures, with meadows for shepherds and folds for flocks. The seacoast shall become the possession of the remnant of the house of Judah, on which they shall graze. And in the houses of Ashkelon they shall lie down at evening. The Lord their God will be mindful of them and restore their fortunes. That's good. So it's not just the narrowing focus within the people of God down to the individual Jew. But it is also a day of judgment for the nations. There's a universality to the judgment. There's an incentive for everyone on the earth to seek Yahweh. As Romans, Paul says in Romans, everyone is left without excuse. There is no one who can contemplate, who can consider the, the general revelation of God, the evidence in the world God has made, including the evidence in themselves, and then still say, well, you know, God just didn't give me enough to find him. That's not real. We like to imagine that there is some case where somebody does have a good excuse. Oh, I lived in some African tribe and I never... No. God gave a sufficient amount of evidence to every, every creature, sentient creature that he made, to call them to repentance, to seek the Lord. And lots and lots choose not to seek him. In today's passage, uh, in the in John in the sermon, there's this great moment. That's kind of the actually the pivotal moment of Jesus's ministry in many ways, which is just when these 
Greeks come to the Passover feast and they come out to find Jesus. And you see this a lot of times printed on pulpits in churches. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. But they're not Jews. They're Greeks. That may not mean that they're from Greece. It means they're from somewhere in the Greek-speaking world. They're Gentiles. The Gentiles are drawn to Jerusalem to see the Lord. Is that in fulfillment of it? Right? We've read from minor prophets that that's exactly what's going to happen. Greeks are going to come to the Holy Place to seek the Lord. The nations are completely without excuse. No matter where they're from, no matter what faults gods, what idolatry was present in their own culture, they are entirely without excuse, and that judgment will be universal. Let's talk about the day of the Lord as a day of salvation. Um, Lauren, will you read 3, 9? For at the time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. That all of them, the nations, will be saved. The whole world will be saved. One of the one of the other things that comes up in this morning's passage is the Bible doesn't hesitate to say what I just said. It also is very clear about what it means by world. <laughs> it doesn't mean every person without exception. It means all people without distinction. Jew, Greek, doesn't matter. Male, female, doesn't matter. Rich, poor, educated, not. Doesn't matter. The whole world will be saved. There won't be anyone you can look at and give any reason why they couldn't be saved except rebellion against God. That is the only thing that would prevent someone from receiving God's salvation. And many will refuse to receive God's salvation. Many love being their own gods, and God is pleased to let them have what they love. But the nations, all of them, will be able to. And then, Crystal, will you read 10 through 13, chapter 3? Beyond the rivers of Hitch, my worshippers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. On that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. But I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly, and they shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Those who are left in Israel, they shall do no injustice and speak no lies nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue, for they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. God will purify His people. I mean, that's, it's, it's the great promise <coughs> and hope for those of us who are in Christ, who are completely assured that we are safely in the hand of God. And I have no fear for my salvation or for my soul. But I have a great deal of turmoil. I I should have more that I who am in Christ am so unchristlike. And I have this incredible hope in God's promise that he will not just save me from judgment, which is fantastic. If that's all I got, it'd be more than enough. I am not downplaying the save me from judgment. Good stuff. I just read that last chapter. It's it's brutal. 
But he always, 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 Old Testament and New, always, 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 God says two things, will save you from that judgment and will purify you, will refine you with fire, will conform you into the image of my son, will make you more like Christ, will make you more holy, will make you more obedient. And so I can look at the the mess pre-Christ and then this sort of mess in process, (laughs) but also acknowledge with joy, it's not as messy as it was before. God is doing a good work in me and all of the things that I see in myself, the sinful things that I hate, that I should hate more, but that I hate. He promises that he's working on those too. It is that, that purification concept. We don't like it when we get it because purifying usually happens with fire. <laughs> it usually happens with trial. It usually happens in the context of our sin or dealing with someone else's sin. But what it's doing is purifying, which is amazing and ought to be hope-inspiring. Stephen, can you read 14 through 20, chapter 3? Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgment against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The king of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day, it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands through me. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival, so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors, and I will save the lame and gather the outcast, and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time, I will bring you in at the time when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. What is the cause for rejoicing in the last day? All this stuff that's going to get done. (laughs) Who does the stuff? The Lord. I think this is the real encouraging testimony that Zephaniah offers us. Is in verse 17, we need to be saved, right? We all recognize our sin and rebellion against God's a real problem, and we need to be saved. In verse 17, who will do the saving? What, you don't need to save yourselves? <laughs> well, good, because have you ever tried to save yourself? Yeah. I think most of us have. <laughs> Doesn't work. <laughs> no good. Hey, that's a great point, Matt. The flock of God that will be gathered. Jesus talks about his flock, and they're not all of the fold of Israel. He's got, multiple, he's got sheep in multiple folds, but he's gathering from these various folds into one fold. Who, verse 18, I'm sorry, who will do the gathering? Oh, so it's not something we have to do by our own strength. He will gather us. So as we struggle to 
be a faithful church and to build a faithful church and to grow a faithful church? How worried do we need to be about gathering God's fold into this church? Not at all if we trust Him to do the gathering. We need to be faithful, but He will gather, not us. How many of us have been impacted by the sin of others in this world? People who hate God and seek to oppress those who love them. Yeah. Don't we want our oppressors to be dealt with? Verse 19, who will deal with the oppressors? God, I will deal with them. Gather the outcast. Change their shame into praise. Those that the world has rejected. God himself will gather and give them cause to rejoice. He will bring in, verse 20, gather. He will make renowned and praise. He will restore fortunes. God will do all of this. Some people may want to use that or be afraid that we would use that as an excuse for inaction or indifference. But that's not what it says. We, being purified, being made more like Christ, pursuing God faithfully, that's our role. That's what we're called to do. But when it comes to the gathering, the dealing with our oppressors, and certainly with the saving, he who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. And so we get to stop being discouraged by the appearance that our faithfulness doesn't work. In our individual lives, in our corporate life, things can give the appearance that faithfulness doesn't work. But nowhere in here does it say you should have a results-based approach. You should have a God-based approach because He will do what He said He will do. And you've got enough to do just focusing on faithfulness. All this other stuff you think you can do, the saving, the gathering, the pouring out wrath of judgment on your enemies, you won't do it. You won't do it right. You won't do it well. You won't do it enough. So do the thing that God gave you to do, which is to walk with Him in humble obedience And then what is this day of terror for some is a day of rejoicing for those who walked with the Lord faithfully.